Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Garcia throws. Swinging a line drive past the diving first baseman. Drury base hit right field. Coming home, Hernandez. Soto's throw. The slide, the tag. He is out at the plate. Soto guns down Hernandez, and the game stays tied. A one-hop strike. Nola sweeps the tag on Hernandez to end the inning. We'll see if the Nationals look to challenge whether Nola blocked the plate. And Davey Martinez wants to talk to the home plate umpire, Paul Emmel. They want to challenge the blocking of the plate here by Nola. As the throw was there in time, he was clearly out, but the Nationals are going to ask about the home plate blocking rule here, and they have elected to challenge this call. After review, it was determined that there was a violation of the home plate collision rule. The runner is safe. The batter is at first base. And here comes Bob Melvin, and Bob Melvin is ejected. Bob Melvin is ejected from the game immediately by Paul Emmel. And it looked like Nola was set up illegally, and then he, at the last second, put his foot on the plate. And Melvin's going over, and he's pointing at home plate and saying, that's where my catcher's foot was. So you can understand his frustration. But clearly, it was a great challenge by the Nationals. The Nationals now lead 4-3, to three, and it's an RBI single for Victor Robles. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, August 14th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, in what has been the opposite of a feel-good season for the Nationals, dare I say we had kind of, sort of, a feel-good win on Saturday night at Nationals Park. That was a fun game. That was a fun outcome. A 4-3 win for the Nats over Wad Soto, Josh Bell, and the San Diego Padres. A second win in four games for the Nats. So the Nats now are a major league worst 38 and 77 on the season. Uh, There was controversy, but it was controversy that went in the Nats' favor. There was a bullpen performance that overall ended up being good for the Nats, although not without like a bunch of walks. There was another home run from our guy Joey Fourbags. Yadiel Hernandez hit a home run. Mark, I know it's not exactly picture perfect, and there were certainly nits to pick, but you know what? A win is a win, and our Nats got a win on Saturday night. For this team, I mean, you take any win you can get, and and this was a fun one. It was a long one. The first five innings just dragged. 
as uh, you Darvish and Annabelle Sanchez tried to outdo each other and how many pitches they could throw without giving up a run was kind of agonizing. But once we got to about the sixth inning, it started to perk up a little bit. In those last few innings, there was some real drama, a lot of fun. And of course, it would all come down to a play involving Juan Soto, just not at the plate, but in the field. And like you said, a call that almost always goes against the Nationals actually went in their favor. And I'm not 100% sure that it should have gone in their favor, but it did. And that was the difference in the game. And it was a play involving Victor Robles with whom it's always something, you know, it's never boring with our guy, Victor. And sometimes it's not boring in a good way. Sometimes it's not boring in a bad way, but on Saturday night, I guess you have to say it was not boring in a good way. So Victor Robles on Saturday night had the game winning hit. He was an at starting center fielder and number one batter. Uh, he went one for four with a big RBI single in what ended up being a Nats one run seventh. Robles had a tie breaking two out first pitch opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield for a four three Nats lead. Scoring on the play was Cesar Hernandez, although he initially was ruled out on a very good throw by, yes, Padres right fielder and ex-Nat Juan Soto. But Davey Martinez astutely challenged the play, and Cesar Hernandez ended up being ruled safe due to Padres catcher Austin Nola having violated one of the most confusing and hard-to-decipher rules in all of sports, the home plate collision rule. Maybe not so much from a standpoint of understanding the rule, but the application of the rule seems to be all over the place. And then, in one of the funnier things I think I've ever seen, the Padres manager, Bob Melvin, comes out of the dugout. You're not allowed to start arguing calls that have been uh, determined via replay review. The umpire's mic was still on, and so you heard him eject Melvin as soon as he came toward the umpire. I'm not sure that I've ever seen that. There were all kinds of things going on with this play. But man, what a sequence. And of course, it worked out in the Nats' favor. All right, let's start with the good thing here, which is Victor Robles taking a 100-mile-an-hour fastball and shooting it the other way in the right field with two outs for an RBI single. Good for him, okay? That's the kind of thing they need from him. He also had, I know he struck out in his first at-bat, but it was a 10-pitch at-bat against you Darvish to start the game in the bottom of the first. It was a really good quality at-bat, just didn't get the end result. So, some good stuff from Robles. All right, part two of all this. That's the best throw I've seen Soto make in a long time. <laughs> And if you think back, he only had thrown out one runner at the plate all year long for the Nationals, and it came in his final game as a National less than two weeks ago. So go figure that. He put a perfect one-hop strike to Nola, and watching it live, I'm thinking Nola did everything exactly right, caught it, put the tag down, bam. Oh no, the Nationals had another runner thrown out at the plate, and the game is still tied. Now, Davey Martinez said he's watching it from the top step of the dugout. He sees it. He thinks immediately he was on the plate. Tells Tim Bogor, the bench coach, call our guys in the video room. We might want to challenge this. They did. Like you, I don't really understand how this call is made and when and why and what determines it or not. To me, it looked like Nola was sort of standing in front of the plate before he had the ball. And then as the ball is coming to him, he actually takes a step back. And now his foot is directly on the middle of the plate. Now, does that mean he's blocking it? Or was there an opportunity for Cesar Hernandez to get in in front of that? And I thought Hernandez's slide was late. And if he slides a little sooner, his front foot probably touches the plate in time. Instead, he overslid. His foot was hovering over the plate before it went down. Now, MLB, you know, they know exactly what they're looking for in these calls. 
That's not Paul Emmel's call, the home plate umpire. It's the guys in New York wherever were signed tonight to that. And they ruled it. I don't love that rule. I've never really loved it. I've seen it go both ways. It's unfortunate that would cost a team in a pennant race a game. But it was nice for a change to see the Nats catch a break on something like that. I will admit that. Yeah, it was. And if you have not seen Melvin getting tossed, you have to see him getting tossed. It's just hysterical because it's it's actually a pretty polite toss. This wasn't like some Earl Weaver confrontation or anything like that. But it's just like, Bob, you're not allowed to come out. You're out of here. And, you're, and the mic is on when the umpire ejects Bob. So it was pretty funny. Yeah. So with the Cesar Hernandez slide, I think that's another really interesting aspect of this play. What he did was essentially hook slide into home plate, and that ended up taking more time. Like you said, I think if Hernandez had just slid like right into Nola's spikes, Hernandez would have been safe regardless of the home plate collision rule. So that was actually a bad slide by Cesar Hernandez in that regard. But of course, it all ended up working out. No doubt, good piece of hitting by Victor Robles to get that hit. And the Nats ended up rallying to win this game. The boys battled, as our guy Davey likes to say. The Nats were down in this game uh, 3 nothing through five innings. And the Nats put up three runs in the bottom of the sixth and a run in the bottom of the seventh. Now, speaking of that three-run bottom of the sixth for the Nats. Here's the pitch. And a swing and a high drive, deep left field. Sending Profar back to the warning track to the wall, and it's gone! Yadiel Hernandez with a two-run opposite field home run. 1-2 to Manessis. Swinging a long drive. Left field. Down the line. It is going, going, and long gone. Home run number five for Joey Manessis. Hitting back-to-back bombs in this game here on Saturday night. So the first homer was from Yadiel Hernandez. Uh, He had a two-out opposite field, two-run homer to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 3-2. 402 feet per stat cast. And then who else? Our guy, Joey Fourbags, Joey Manessis, another home run on Saturday night. He comes up and he goes back to back with Yadiel, a two out solo shot to left field on a one two pitch to tie the game at three, 415 feet for Stadcast. If you're keeping track, that's now five home runs in nine career major league regular season games for Manessis. He also in the game had a single. He in the bottom of the fourth had a two-out opposite field single to right field on an 0-2 pitch. So single on an 0-2 pitch, homer on a 1-2 pitch. Joey Manessis now, in addition to having the five homers in nine games, is slugging 871 and has a 441 on base to go with a 387 batting average. Um, You know, the homers are great. It's not just the homers. He's doing some other things. But man, another shot, another tape measure shot, and another key shot. It seems like all of his homers are like clutch homers or homers that come in the latter innings of close games for the Nats. If I didn't know any better, I would say this is the kind of thing that Juan Soto would do for you, is it not? (laughs) I mean, it's nine games, so let's not get too crazy here. And how long is this going to last? But if you could have imagined it was possible for anybody to fill Juan Soto's shoes, at least through nine games, he has produced as much, if not better, than Juan Soto. His last at bat, he almost hit another one out. It was right to the base of the wall in left field. The crowd was like ready to explode if that one actually cleared the fence. It didn't quite get there. This is a remarkable thing to see happen to a 30-year-old rookie. And right now, everybody knows that you just enjoy this. You don't know what it means. You don't know if pitchers are going to start to figure him out, get a book on him, decide what they need to do. And you know, the next thing you know, he's just a flash in the pan. But five in nine, the only player in modern history 
to hit more home runs in their first nine major league games was Trevor Story of the Rockies in 2016. It's according to baseball reference. It's a remarkable thing. This isn't some highly touted prospect who everybody was anticipating. This is the guy who literally was only called up because Juan Soto and Josh Bell were traded. And he's in the lineup that first night and the, a depressed crowd is like, who is this guy? What is he doing here? He hits a home run and he's off and running ever since then. Now everybody knows who he is. It's been really a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And like the unsung or unexpected hero of last night season, Paolo Espino, I think the name plays into this. Like Joey Manessis is such a unique name, kind of an odd name. You're kind of like, who, what? You know, it sounds like the name of some Scrabini from the minors, you know? So like that he's doing this with that name, I think adds to this. Here's what I find hysterical though. So it was on August 2nd that the Nats traded Juan Soto and Josh Bell to the Padres. Since then, Soto and Bell have combined for one home run. Joey Manessis since then has hit five home runs. He's outperforming not just Soto, but Soto and Bell. You know, Bell isn't doing that well with San Diego. His numbers with the Padres are not very good. Now, you know, 10 games, small small sample size, we get all that. But it is really funny that <laughs> Joey Manessis is outperforming these guys so far uh, since that trade happened. It's crazy, man. This is becoming like the summer of Manessis, you know? And it's just like, you know, like you said, like, don't read too much into it. I think that's exactly the way to play it. It's like a summer fling, you know? Honey, I don't know where this is going. Let's just have a good time, all right? Joey, I don't know where this is going, man, but let's just enjoy this. You know, it's too bad the Nats are this bad because if they were even, like, just in wild card contention, this would really be a thing, Joey Manessis and him catching fire. We've seen stories like this in baseball over the years. This fits so many of those stories. This story has so many things going forward in that direction of, like, unexpected hero out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he's hitting like crazy. Yeah, he'd be leading all the highlight packages uh, across the league if they were competitive and these actually were significant home runs he was hitting. Not to say they aren't for him, but in the grand scheme of things, as we know, they're not. But yeah, this is, like you said, the summer fling. I mean, I feel like come Labor Day, everybody's going to have to go home and get ready for school to start again, and you're never going to hear from this guy. <laughs> you know, say, oh, yeah, we'll write, I'll write to you. We'll, we'll see you again next summer. And you get to next summer, like, oh, yeah, remember that guy? Remember Joey Manessis? That was kind of fun for a while. And I wonder whatever happened. I, hey, maybe it won't be. Maybe he is their future first baseman or right fielder or cleanup hitter, whatever it is. Maybe they got something here. But for now, try not to overanalyze it. Just have fun with it because it has brought some fun to a two-week period here that has mostly not been fun at all for anybody. No, it hasn't been. Who says the Nats don't develop players? They get their hands on Manessis, 30-year-old, <laughs> 10-year minor leaguer, and they got him hitting bombs like crazy. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Kbert Ruiz? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. 
This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now the 3-2 swing and a base hit through the hole in the right field for Nelson Cruz, a leadoff single here in the bottom of the eighth inning. So a two-hit game for Cruz. That is a milestone hit for Cruz. They're going to get that baseball for him. His 2,000th career hit. Few other offensive standouts for the Nats on Saturday night. Cesar Hernandez did have three singles to go with a stolen base, uh, so that was nice to see. And we had a milestone. Late in the game on Saturday night, Nelson Cruz, congrats to him. He gets career major league regular season hit number 2000 in this game. So Nelson Cruz on Saturday night, he had a walk. He had in that three run six, a two out single to get the rally going. And then he in the bottom of the eighth had a leadoff full count opposite field single through the right side of the infield, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. And that was career hit number 2000. If this is the end of the line for Nelson Cruz in his career, and who knows if it is, it's nice to see him get to a milestone like that. Yeah, uh, look, it's been a little bit of a long slog to get to that point for him. He probably thought they probably thought this happened a lot sooner in the year. It didn't. He's stuck with it. And here's the crazy thing: he's the first player to get to 2,000 hits while wearing a Nationals uniform. It's never happened to anybody else. Ryan Zimmerman didn't, unfortunately. Couldn't say healthy enough to get to that number over time. I, I think it's possible the only other player who's ever been with the Nationals and was a 2,000-hit guy, not for the Nats, but at some point in his career, I think might just be Pudge Rodriguez. I'm not sure if they've had anybody else over the course of an entire career that got to 2,000 hits uh, before, during, or after 
they were a national. So that was kind of cool and a fun little moment in the clubhouse afterwards. They're celebrating it. And the backstory here is Davey had a milestone win in LA. And during the celebration of that, Nelson Cruz got him with a shaving cream pie in the face. So tonight, as they're celebrating this, Davey snuck up behind him and he said he got him really good with a shaving cream pie in the face. And uh, as we're interviewing Nelson, he's already showered, dressed afterwards. I still saw a few uh, uh, remnants of it around the rim of his ear. So uh, he didn't get it completely out. He didn't get it all out. Yeah, the only other guy I could think of was maybe Adam Dunn, but he did not get to 2,000 hits. He was like 1,600 plus in his career. So you're a Hall of Fame voter. Nelson Cruz has had a great career. He does have the biogenesis thing in his background, however you want to treat that. Have you thought at all about Nelson's Hall of Fame candidacy? I mean, do you view him as a future Hall of Famer? I haven't really seriously looked at it. And I I purposely try not to think about these things until they actually get to the ballot, because it's going to be five years after they retire before it happens. And you sort of want to let time pass and not be making those kind of decisions in the moment as you're watching them, but allow you know, the course of time to help you make that decision. He's going to get a lot of votes, certainly. I think what we have seen is that the DH barrier, which was a major barrier for a long time, has been toppled over by Frank Thomas, Edgar Martinez, now David Ortiz. I don't think Nelson Cruz is in class with them, but they all got in. Well, Edgar was a little tougher road, but Ortiz and Thomas got in very easily on their first ballots. So, I would imagine, based on the way we've seen this go, that Nelson Cruz, probably not a first ballot Hall of Famer, but my guess is over the course of his 10 years on the ballot, would probably get there just based on what we've seen from those numbers and from other DHs. Now, the biogenesis thing, of course, is going to stand out like a sore thumb. You know my history of not voting for guys who are uh, for whom there is convincing evidence that they did take anything, so that would be a major red flag for me and something I'd have to look at a little more closely if I wanted to relax that rule. But the feeling on PEDs has softened over the years. Certainly a newer generation of younger writers has come up and been more forgiving of it. So I would think there's going to be a strong case for him, maybe not on the first ballot, but over the course of 10 years, I could see him getting in. Well, he can always say that he had ringworm and he needed to treat the ringworm. And <laughs> if you just say that, then that's a get out of jail free card, maybe. I'm not so sure that's getting Fernando Tatis out of jail, but he, he's going to try. He's trying to get it out of jail. He is. It's maybe the single least convincing argument for why someone tested positive for a PED I think I've ever heard. Anibal Sanchez, he does not appear to be on PEDs. He's certainly not pitching like he's on PEDs. We had another Anibal Sanchez start on Saturday night. He allowed three runs in five innings. He gave up six hits, two homers, a double, and three singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. And he, over especially the first few innings of the outing, seemed like he was trying to keep us all watching this game or at this game for the rest of our lives. The first two innings of this game, it felt like took forever. The time of game ended up being actually less than the time of game on Friday night, which was surprising. The game on Friday night, four hours, three minutes. This game was tracking toward being like eight hours, ended up being three hours and 31 minutes. But Sanchez, over his five innings, threw 98 pitches, 57 strikes versus 41 balls. He, in the top of the third, allowed a run on a leadoff first pitch homer by Manny Machado to right field. Sanchez, in the top of the fourth, allowed two runs, gave up a one-out solo homer to Trent Grisham to the second deck in right field for a 2-0 Padres lead, gave up a one-out single to Austin Nola to left field on an 0-2 pitch, issued a one-out wild pitch, gave up a two-out RBI single to our pal Juan Soto to center field for a 3-0 Padres lead. 
There's a larger question here, and we'll get to it, and that is Kate Cavalli and what he did on Saturday night. And are we, in fact, seeing the end here of Anibal Sanchez or of someone in the Nats rotation? Maybe it's not Sanchez. Maybe it's Corey Abbott. Maybe it's somebody else. But boy, those first few innings, I feel like, took years off our lives, Mark. It was not just Sanchez, but it was you, Darvish, as well. Between them, they threw 99 pitches in the first two innings, even though those were two scoreless innings. Okay? There were 50 pitches thrown in this game in total before anybody put a ball in play. I mean, stop and think about that. Nothing but strikeouts and walks for 50 pitches. So for all of you three true outcome fans and who love the lack of action in baseball, that first couple of innings was all for you tonight. And for me, it was torture. I did not enjoy that at all. It was really difficult to watch. Thankfully, like we said, it turned into an exciting game late because of a lot of other stuff happening. But look, Anibal gave them a chance. He went five innings, gave up three runs. And for this team and for him, that's as good as it's going to get. He did give up two more homers. He's giving them up at a rate way higher than Josiah Gray gives him up. But at least they were solo shots. At least he limited the damage. Otherwise, he completed five innings to get it to the bullpen. And the bullpen was fantastic after that. So I'm not going to get down too much on him for this. But Look, we know what he is at this point. This was the best you're going to get out of Sanchez. And um does appear there's a, a certain right-hander at AAA right now who you've got to believe would give him a little better chance than that if he were to be called up. We've been asking for Cade Cavalli to start kicking down the door. And I do believe that the foot is now uh, firmly entrenched on the door and the door is starting to shake here. Cade Cavalli on Saturday night in the AAA Rochester Red Wings 5-1 win over the Norfolk Tides was outstanding. One run in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus two walks and three hits. He threw 96 pitches, 64 strikes versus 32 balls. You love that ratio. And Cavalli now is putting together a body of work here lately that does start to scream, call me up, I'm ready. You can sort of do this in a variety of ways, but if you just look at just his last six starts, 31 and two-thirds innings, ERA of 142, 35 strikeouts in those 31 and two-thirds innings. It has not been a great season from the get-go for Cavalli. We've talked about that. But the idea has always been once he gets into that run and he gets into that zone and you feel like, okay, it's all coming together, that's when it's going to feel like he's ready to be called up. I'm sure there are things that Mike Rezzo and his staff look at that we have no idea about. But just looking at the basic numbers, looking at the peripherals, it sure feels like if he's not ready, he's got to be awfully close. I'm not sure what else he needs to do now, given how he's been pitching lately, to command being called up uh, to the major league level. Yeah, I agree with you. You can even go back more than the six starts over his last 12. It's a 2.12 ERA, a whip just over one, and still more strikeouts than innings pitch. So that's a good long stretch that includes that little period of time where he was shut down with the finger thing and uh, they gave him a little bit of a break. To me, the thing that stood out most about this most recent one uh, on Saturday night, it's the seven innings and the 96 pitches. They could have pulled him after six. They didn't. They pushed him to go seven and 96. And I do think that could be a sign that they are getting close to calling him up because if you're willing to extend him to that point, you're kind of seeing, okay, what can we do? That's the kind of thing you do in a big league game. And, you know, you don't want to call him up without him having even come close to approaching 100 pitches. You want him to be at a full length start in terms of stamina before you make that move. So 
I actually thought that was maybe the most significant thing out of it. Forget about the other numbers. The fact they let him go seven and approach 100 pitches, I think is a good sign. The only problem, and this is a PR problem, it's not a, a baseball problem, is that to do it now would mean that he would debut on the West Coast. So after their coming up series against the Cubs, they go out West and they face the Padres and the Mariners before they come back home. You would like to think that they want to have him debut at home, given how much they've hyped it up and given what this organization needs right now. So you're now talking a couple weeks until they're back home again, if you wanted to do that. So we'll see. I mean, that would probably mean at least two more starts before we'd actually see him maybe the weekend of August 26th against the Reds. But you know what? At this point, I've given up trying to predict this. We've thought he was on the verge before. He wasn't. We know they're monitoring his innings. We know they keep saying whenever they call him up, they want him to be here for good. They don't want to have to shut him down, all this stuff. But from a performance and a you know just a standpoint of proving himself, I don't know what else is left. And in a way, you would hate to see him like burn up these great dominant starts at AAA when maybe he could be doing something similar at this level. Yeah. Look, I'm sure they care about drawing big crowds. I don't know how much his debut is going to impact attendance. It should help, but I don't think they're going to like, you know, get 40,000 plus for that. So I don't know. I think they probably should just go by what makes the most sense from a baseball standpoint and just kind of go from there. Again, I mean, we don't know what they're looking at. We don't know what they're thinking, but just outside looking in, it's hard not to think that he's not there now, especially given what they have at the major league level. Not that that should dictate what they do with him as we've discussed, but geez, I mean, how many more of these Anibal Sanchez and Corey Abbott starts do we have to take in? Here's another thing too, not that this means anything for this, but Bryce Harper debuted at the Dodgers, right? Yeah, and that, but it was a product of uh, a couple injuries. I think it was Ryan Zerman's injury that actually precipitated it. But yeah, no, you're right. It, it's not like they always do it at home. I, the one I remember, of course, was Strasburg, and that was very calculated when they were going to do it. But you knew Strasburg was a draw, and they did get a sellout crowd and national TV audience. That was a debut unlike any you're maybe ever going to see. This is not going to be that. So maybe you would do it out west. Although, all, you know, you want to face him Juan Soto in his major league debut? No, you don't. I mean, maybe Seattle. I mean, that that home schedule after the trip out west does look like, okay, Cincinnati, Oakland, like that would make, that would be more ideal if you want to have them hit the ground running. So yeah, maybe they just hold them off until then. I mean, look, if they wait an extra few days, they've waited an extra few months with the way the season has gone with him. So it's not like it really matters. So we'll see. But yeah, he would appear to be getting close and uh, that'll be exciting to see uh, with him. Now, of uh, more immediacy here with the Nats, we know that Patrick Corbin was set to start on Tuesday. And I know Davey Martinez talked to you guys on Saturday about this bullpen session that Corbin threw. And uh, sounds like this was one of the greatest bullpen sessions anyone has ever thrown. Uh, What did Davey have to say about it? Well, the term he used for that bullpen session was that he threw, quote, exceptionally well in that bullpen session. I don't know how you can determine that much from a, you know, 40 pitch session with no hitters and no pressure or anything like that. But something they saw, they seem to like a lot. This is after the first one, uh, which was at Wrigley Field with Jim Hickey, with the video guy, the analytics guy, all that. You know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, He's going to start on Tuesday, maybe a little break, allowed him to clear his head a little bit. Maybe there is something they worked on mechanics that helped him out. But I mean, boy, 
I don't want to say there's a whole lot riding on this start, but if he can have some success, you say, okay, maybe they did figure something out. If the same thing happens to him and he gets knocked out early again, where is it left to turn? What else is there to do at this point? So I do feel like there is kind of a decent amount riding on this next start for him when he makes it on Tuesday night. At some point, there is a tipping point. We have felt like the tipping point was arrived at previously, and it turns out that it wasn't. Remember that game against uh, Arizona where he got booed off the field at Nationals Park? We felt like that was a turning point. It didn't really prove to be one. He now has had two starts in three outings, uh, six runs in two-thirds of an inning. Maybe that's a tipping point, but then again, maybe not. So we'll see. We don't know. Like with Cavalli, we just don't know. Um But yeah, I got a kick out of that because remember, it was Davey a few weeks ago who proclaimed that Patrick Corbin was back and things have gotten worse since then. So I don't know. I don't know if Davey can be be a trusted source anymore and how Corbin is doing, but we get it. Davey's going to stand up for his guys. Nobody's going to fault him for that. Uh, I got a kick out of the Nats bullpen on Saturday night. Four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings with four strikeouts. You like that, but it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, The four relievers combined to issue five walks in the game. And it was kind of one of these deals where the relievers ultimately got the job done, but more than one of them took like a circuitous route to getting the job done. Uh, Steve Ciszek, for example, scoreless top of the six despite issuing two walks. Uh, Kyle Finnegan, for example, scoreless top of the seventh despite giving up a leadoff full count double to Manny Machado off the wall. And Machado had been down at 1.02 despite issuing a five pitch walk at Josh Bell. And then despite issuing a one out intentional walk at Jake Cronenworth, to load the bases. Finnegan is so used to coming into bases loaded predicaments, he was like, I need to create one on my own, and then I'll try to pitch out of that. And he did, uh, believe it or not. And then Hunter Harvey, he tossed a scoreless top of the eighth despite issuing a two-out six-pitch walk of Juan Soto. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. tossed a scoreless top of the ninth inning. So look, bottom line, the relievers got the job done, but uh, it wasn't always clean for these guys. No, it wasn't. There were some harrowing moments, and it's almost a minor miracle they got out of that without giving up anything else after the fourth inning of this game to that lineup. But credit to them. I do have to say, like, it's pretty amazing that Davey has enough options at this point that he can go to Kyle Finnegan, his best reliever, in the seventh inning to face the heart of the lineup, get him through a very difficult jam, and then still have two other pretty reliable guys after that in Hunter Harvey and Carl Edwards Jr. in a one-run game against a good lineup and that that formula can work. And it just makes you think like, man, if they just had you know the rest of the pieces of a roster that you'd like to have, they finally have legitimate bullpen depth, even with Tanner Rainey out with Tommy John surgery. That's a pretty cool thing to see actually in practice how that works because he's doing this a lot now. I mean, Finnegan in theory is his closer and he keeps going to him in like the seventh inning because those feel like the bigger moments and he's able to do it because he's got other options. Hunter Harvey, has, you know, he's had a couple of blow ups here and there, but he's stayed healthy, knock on wood since coming back and he's still throwing gas. Uh, and Carl Edwards Jr. is is still delivering for them. Uh, in some big spots. And now he's got two saves for them within the last week. So good for them. It's kind of nice to see that scenario where in the past, we always just assumed they were going to find a way to blow it late. Instead, now you're almost surprised if they don't finish it off. Yeah. And we'd have to look it up, but I almost feel like Finnegan lately has pitched more in non ninth innings than he's actually pitched in ninth innings, which is kind of like, you know, usually you say, all right, once in a while, the manager will deploy the ace reliever in a non-ninth inning. It feels like the norm now for Finnegan is to come in prior uh, to a ninth inning. But that's good. I think that's smart that Davey does that. And yeah, the irony is not lost on anyone listening to this podcast. A team that for years has struggled with bullpens 
all of a sudden seems like it has a decent bullpen and yet it's in a season in which it doesn't really matter if you have a decent bullpen. Yeah, the only thing I'd say about the, that Finnegan thing, you're right, but the problem is they so rarely are in a close game late. There's not like there have been a lot of opportunities to use him in a traditional closers role. And so sometimes he may feel like, hey, we actually have a shot to win this game. Let's get him out there right now and, and try to seal this before you know ever gets to the ninth inning. That's what it feels like with Davey, that it's so rare that they're in a game late in the game that he's like, okay, we got to go all out. And he starts managing like it's 2019 and late October again, you know, and he's going crazy. I, I have expect him to like put Josiah Gray in, in, a, in a relief outing, you know, just say, hey, I got to throw my best starter now. You know, we got to close out this win. So, hey. Well, maybe Corbin will come out of the bullpen at some point in that scenario. Maybe that's how you get Corbin in the bullpen. <laughs> you just pretend like it's 2019 again and you say, hey, this is what we did then. So let's do it now. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. Uh, And uh, also, if you have the time, uh, consider writing a brief one or two-sentence review of the podcast, uh, saying that you like the podcast. Uh, We appreciate that. You can do the reviews on Apple Podcasts. The ratings and the reviews help us out a lot. Uh, Nats Chat is on the radio Sunday mornings at 9 on both 1061 ESPN in Richmond and Sports Radio 965 FM and 850 AM in the Hampton Roads area. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Here's the 3-1, swing and a high pop-up. Third base side foul ground, Franco racing over. He's under it waiting, and he makes the catch. A curly W is in the books. Carl Edwards Jr. preserves this one, and the Nationals have a 4-3 win over the San Diego Padres.